what is going on with the advice guidance boundary review? Here to explain all are Michael Lawrence, formerly of the FCA and now with the financial services regulatory consultancy firm Bovell, and Nathan Long, policy and pensions expert at Hargreaves Lansdowne. I thought we should start with just a kind of quick recap on why we've ended up where we have now before we start digging into some of the details around the advice guidance boundary and where we might go next. And I guess, I mean, you'd flagged this, Michael, I think the kind of the RDR was the point at which then it was the FSA, I think, back then, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, sort of pulled the trigger on the whole advice model and started the, the process of driving out commission, which I think most people would regard as a good thing, but has had consequences. And pretty much ever since then, and that was 2006, I think they started that. Yeah, it took a while from when they began, you know, peering deep into their crystal ball to think about it to when you know, the kind of D-Day happened 31st of December 2012. So a long time in the offing for a bit of policy, I think. Yeah. And then 2015, I think it was, sort of shortly after the general election of that year, they announced the Financial Advice Market Review to take a look at how it was all working. Yeah. I mean, the FCA announced it, but I think, you know, (coughs) Treasury were kind of prodding the FCA to, to look at it. And it ended up being a joint review, which I had the, the pleasure of working on. So, yeah, it's one of those ones. Would the FCA have done it if they weren't pushed? Probably not. But, you know, I think it was sensible to, to look at some of the dimensions of the market as they were at that time. Because, you know, while many, you know, undoubted improvements were made to the market following RTR, you know, there were some bits that probably could and should have been working better. So ultimately a good thing after the FCA were kind of encouraged to get on with doing it. And Nathan, I'd be interested in your take on this, but I think the industry came out of that pharma review a couple of years later, somewhat underwhelmed with the conclusions the FCA came to. You know, there's a sense that, yes, there is something of an advice gap developing, going back to RDR and since RDR, and the industry is doing quite a good job of serving a pretty small percentage of the population, but there's an awful lot of other people who aren't getting the help they need. Is it fair to say, Nathan, the Pharma Review didn't really move the dial significantly on that? I mean, you're probably right, it didn't really change the dial much, but I do think that that's when the sort of seeds of kind of what we're seeing now in terms of consumer duty and an outcomes-based framework, there were certain things that started to appear in that output which didn't actually kind of give concrete sort of policy direction when we were sort of reading through. You could sort of see that actually the sort of way, the direction of thinking that the FCA was going. So I think there was kind of crumbs of comfort in those in that work without it necessarily being hugely exciting at the time, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it, it felt like they were trying, but it also felt like they're, the FCA, but it also felt like they felt their hands were tied by the sort of legislative definitions of advice. Is that fair, Michael? Uh, yeah, I think so. Obviously, this is pre-MIFID 2, which came later, a couple of years later. So there's probably a bit more flexibility back then than there was after the new rules came in, because obviously that was kind of directive requirements where the FCA couldn't change them if it wanted to. It could publish guidance on it at probably its own risk if it wanted to, but, you know, the rules were set. So back then, maybe there was some flexibility. 
I suppose at the time, you know, the market had made a number of good strides since RTR. But yeah, there were certainly customers for whom, you know, perhaps the choice of services was not what it once was. I suppose the sense was that it was some tinkering would be enough. And there was some, you know, you know, genuine outputs coming out of it. You know, the advice unit was one. The idea of having this quasi-consultancy service within the regulator to give, you know, firms with more innovative models a bit of help and support in navigating their rule book because of the nature of the model not quite fitting with the kind of rules often, you know, drafted on the basis of quite old-fashioned face-to-face advice and so on. And there were some changes as well to the, the definition of advice and what constituted regulated advice for authorised firms, which basically meant that if you were authorised, you could do a bit more before it became a personal recommendation. But you're right, I don't think it kind of changed the dial massively. And I suppose you see the throughput of that when the pension freedoms came in and some of the kind of challenges there, you know, the nature of the models around to support those customers, perhaps not quite matching up to their needs. And we had attempts at sort of robo-advice type solutions and the use of technology. And I was I was really struck a month or two ago talking to, to one of the bigger platforms about their attempts to develop an automated advisory service. And they built some some really good tech and you know they worked out a lot of how it would de- get delivered. The problem they bumped into is that the it was largely the UK tax system that as soon as you you know as soon as you engage with the enemy, as soon as you start to to build into it the complexities of the pension and IHT and CGT tax systems and all the personal allowances, it very rapidly becomes so brutally complicated that it's actually really hard to deliver anything. And I think it was striking to see the FCA's idea about the core investment advice they came up with, I think, in 2021. They first started talking about this idea of, well, we could do just a little carve-out core investment advice for people are putting new money into ISIS. We're worried about people languishing in cash. So here's a way to help firms nudge people towards investment solutions. And that was like a great idea. But that kind of fell on stony ground. And most of the industry took one look at it and said, well, that's not an interesting commercial proposition. We're going to have nothing to do with that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably a few reasons why Robo has yet to, to kind of kick on. I mean, I think firstly, to quote from kind of Field of Dreams or misquote, you know, if, if you build it, they won't necessarily come. So, you know, a load of firms have built some quite, you know, interesting, kind of captivating from a kind of user experience perspective propositions. And yet, you know, getting you know feet through the virtual door has been difficult. You know, the cost of client acquisition has been high. You know, people aren't discerning shoppers when it comes to robo-advice, you know. And, and I think when the FCA did some research in this space, you know, many people didn't quite feel the weight of a robo-recommendation as they would if they got the same thing from a person. So I think that's one key bit. I mean, the other bit about that core investment advice regime is that that did have to be kind of created within the the spectrum of the MIFID requirements. 
And so the ability for the FCA to kind of subtract from those to create a more fleet of foot regime where suitability is a bit more straightforward, a bit more predictable, was quite limited. I mean, they could give some guidance on MIFID, but they couldn't change MIFID. And so in the end, you know, I don't think what they said within that CP really gave firms a lot more in terms of managing their liabilities and concerns about mis-selling and the ombudsman. And then you bring in the economics that you mentioned as well, and it's not there. But of course... You know, once the financial services bill is through and the FCA gets those MIFID rules, if it wanted to create basic advice mark two, whatever that looks like, it could do. And so I sense now with the advice guidance band review, there's some interesting stuff on the horizon and more flexibility for the regulator if, of course, if it, it wants to go down that road of being a bit more predictable around suitability. So come August of this year, they announced this advice guidance boundary review. Um, they issued some further clarification for firms just to kind of make it easier for firms to, to, to pass, you know, what, what is advice, what is guidance, what helpful information can we give to customers? But I mean, this might be one for you, Nathan. What are the current problems with where the boundary sits today? What is it firms are looking for to change, to help them help their customers? A simply asked question, Tom, but it's uh, it's incredibly complex. I think the easiest way to kind of to explain this is that what firms need to be able to do to help their clients is to be able to join the dots. And what I mean by that is it's helping them realise the information that's delivered to them is actually relevant to them because of X, Y, and Z. And that's the kind of thing that allows that personalization of information to an individual to encourage them to take action. That's kind of really what the industry's sort of driving towards. And the reason for that is, well, there's multiple reasons. So lots of the problems that Michael's just sort of articulated there. But you've, you've basically got this issue where you've got a very good product service in terms of financial advice but the ability to get that advice requires quite a big commitment and that's a commitment not just in terms of cost but it's a commitment in terms of time commitment in terms of the hassle to go and dig out all your paperwork it's a commitment in terms of trust in terms of that trust of I'm putting all of my trust with this individual and I know that I'm going into this conversation with very little information or knowledge and the other person has a lot of knowledge. So there's, there is a big sort of challenge with getting people to take advice. And I think the failure of some of those robo-solutions, so Michael mentioned there's loads of things that looked great, but people just weren't prepared to use them. Now, there are, there are multiple reasons why that's the case. But actually, to a certain extent, people are already using financial services. And if we can give them more confidence to help them make decisions whilst they're using those products to get more value out of the products they already have, which is what we think delivering a more proactive guidance service, which we think is possible under a change in the advice guidance boundary, that's the thing that's going to really shift the dial. And I think it's not only going to help people who are managing their money right now, it's going to help them understand when they don't know enough and then they go out and speak to advisors. So I think really the whole people just benefit from a greater awareness of what they can do, what they should do, when it gets a bit too hard, when they might rely on an expert for advice. That's the kind of thing the industry's after, really. So why can't the industry do that under the current framework? Is it that it starts to look too much like a personal recommendation? Yeah, and I mean, Michael will be able to sort of talk to this well, but the there is, I guess, 
two things here. The actual rules themselves around what constitutes a personal recommendation and therefore is advice and therefore comes with all of the extra requirements on a firm, which mean that they have to charge for it, etc., etc. So you've got to steer clear of making a personal recommendation. That's that's the kind of key thing. And largely, some of the interaction between industry and FCA over the last few years has been that the FCAs, and I have a lot of sympathy with this position, have said, look, the rules are quite clear and we think the industry can do a lot more than they, they currently are. And the industry says, well, you're saying that, but we can't because we've got all these concerns from a compliance perspective. So I think a lot of the issue that you see is that the rules aren't particularly straightforward. It depends on how they're interpreted. And there's so many layers within organisations within the financial services industry that actually quite quickly you gravitate to, well, let's just be cautious around this. We don't want to take that risk of it being a personal recommendation. We'll err on the side of caution. And as a result, we're less helpful to our clients. And so where that line sits of what constitutes advice and not is important, not necessarily because of the actual rules themselves, but because of what behaviour it drives within financial services firms who are trying to deliver great information to their clients. So, Michael, you've seen this from both sides of the fence now, first within the FCA and now more recently on the outside. Are you sympathetic with that analysis? Yeah, I think so. It's difficult, let's just put it that way. But I do agree with Nathan that although it's difficult, under the existing rules, you know, firms could do more if they looked at the kind of risks and the liabilities through it with a maybe a different perspective. And yet, even then, I kind of get why the current, you know, status quo exists in many firms. And remember, you know, it's not that every firm has the same risk appetite in this space. There's often a, a significant spectrum, and it tends to be the firms or the incumbent players with, you know, the big compliance departments who perhaps have had their kind of fingers burnt in the past, but the ombudsman who obviously are loath to, to kind of push the limits or even get close to the boundary. And that's kind of understandable. And then you get the smaller players with less to lose, with market share to win, who are, you know, prepared to to take you know very different decisions and, and do a lot more so you end up getting a kind of weird market where you've got different firms doing different stuff but everyone thinking they're doing the right thing I, I get all of that but Michael this I think this is a really important point right because that's exactly how things play out but the biggest win for consumers in all of this is if some of the bigger incumbent firms are encouraged to take to get closer in terms of how to that line to provide more helpful information, because if they are convinced to, to do it, by virtue of them having more clients, that's what really transforms the, the industry, that's what helps more people, that's what drives financial resilience. I just think that this is what we need to try and help yeah. the FCA to deliver, because if you can get innovation in those bigger firms, it's obviously the responsibility of those firms as well to sort of step up to the plate. That's what's really going to drive the improvements in the financial services sector. Agreed. And you're right. I mean, all of those small, you know, innovative firms willing to take a level of risk, let's assume it's a sensible one, 
are not going to change the dial here. And, and the impact will come with a kind of broad spectrum of firms, the big, the, the medium and, and, and the small, feeling confident in this space to do a bit more. The, the boundary as it currently is is kind of set out within the kind of regulated activities order. And, and I, I obviously it wasn't around when that was, was done, but obviously it, it's there to protect consumers you know, in the sense that, you know, there's a regulatory perimeter. We don't want all and sundry being able to kind of direct customers towards specific investment outcomes without kind of due, you know, process and, and whatnot in place. So that's the challenge the FCA has got to try and make it easier for the firms that it authorises to do more while still, you know, maintaining an effective perimeter to keep out those firms who are going to, you know, sell you the latest mini bond or whatever else and, and the consumers not realising the difference between the two. Uh, and my sense is because of those kind of tensions, the kind of willingness to maybe give a little bit away, give a bit more latitude to firms to do a bit more, often is seen through the lens of, well, what might the kind of negative outcomes be? But I really do think it's at a kind of inflection point because ultimately, whilst there is always a risk that when you make regulatory change, it might open up a kind of door for firms to kind of prey on the on vulnerable customers, if you don't do it, the absence of that action, the kind of opportunity cost loss, back to your point, Nathan, is, is quite significant. I, I get the sense that they recognise that and so are approaching it with a, a kind of open mind. I mean, I get the sense there is genuinely appetite to do things differently, but as ever, the, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating and it is, you know, devilishly complicated. So hopefully they've got the best people on this. Yeah, and that is actually really important. It is complicated and I think the industry absolutely recognizes that because one of the things I think that I've heard played back to the FCA from the industry on on many occasions is that the industry doesn't want a quick solution to this they just want the right solution you know we want the FCA to take their time and really get this right there's no point kind of having a false start on something which doesn't work we need something which actually is going to deliver change for consumers and I agree with you, Michael. I just think that there is that. I think it is an inflection point, the term you used. I think absolutely now's the time. And I think I think it's doable. I think it's challenging. But I think there needs to be, I guess, just the bravery to do it on both sides, from the FCA and then for the industry to step up and actually deliver and make a difference. I mean, the obvious question then is, what's that going to look like then? You know, it's, it's, So is this about redefining what suitability looks like or how much flexibility you allow on that? Because Michael's point around... We don't want to open the door to the bad actors starting to push people into products. You know, this takes us back to where we've been in, in the bad place before. So there's that risk will always exist. So how does the FCA square the circle? How does it allow firms to give the customers the help and the confidence they need to make good decisions without allowing firms to do the bad stuff? What, what does the good solution look like, Nathan? The Investment and Savings Association, TISA, they've done an awful lot of work on this over the past few years and they've really been focused on what is it that firms can actually do to help clients what's the problem how are we going to be able to focus that and how can you build the regulations cognizant of the fact of that issue how do you stop the bad actors coming in so 
I think that the general view within the industry is that the big bang for your buck is allowing more guidance. So it's not necessarily about allowing simplified advice because there are still barriers to sort of access. That's not to say that that might not have a role in delivering some improved solutions in certain scenarios. But by and large, the industry is supportive of this idea of giving personalised financial guidance. So it's basically using the data that firms already have to try and personalise the content to make it more relevant, to mean that people are more likely to take that action. And what Tizer is proposing is that there is an additional authorization given by the FCA to firms who want to deliver this, but there is a really clear governance framework for the firms that actually apply for this authorization, And that requires clear articulation of what outcomes are trying to be driven, the measures that you're going to sort of measure to deliver that, and data sharing with the FCA so that that is essentially in real time, the FCA can sort of check to see whether those are being delivered. And that is quite a burden on firms that would apply for that. But we think it's important because ultimately, this is really the future of the consumer duty. Lots of what we're talking about here is better communication, more relevant communication to clients, making clients aware of potential harm, that's all under the consumer duty. That's kind of what we're expected to do. This kind of gives you the conditions to allow firms to apply to go and do that. Now, you could say, why bother doing the authorization? Why not just grant all firms to do personalised guidance? And I think the reason why you wouldn't have that to begin with is to keep some of those bad actors out and to say, look, we're going to trial it you know, you have to apply for this authorization. The FCA can be much stricter about who they allow in based on an acceptance of seeing what the business model is, checking the governance of process in advance, et cetera, et cetera, as itself gets more comfortable in terms of how they might supervise this, how they may regulate it. So I think that's what a great solution looks like. Ultimately, you need access to information without having to do anything more as an individual. It needs to be kind of something that happens to you. You're surfaced information automatically rather than having to go and seek it necessarily when you might not necessarily otherwise be inclined to do so. Yeah, I'll jump in on what Nathan's saying there. So I'd say what the advice guidance boundary needs to do, there's a number of challenges. So definitely, you know, open up firms to be more supportive, to help people make better informed decisions, you know, by pointing stuff out. But then also, you know, there'll be some people for whom, even if you give them the best personalised guidance in the world, and, and, you know, this is all prejudging where it might end up, and obviously I'm I'm not including on that, but let's assume that you're not going to be able to point people at specific products. Some customers will still be reticent to make that decision. I think the solution is both allowing firms to be more helpful in the kind of guidance, non-advice space, but also kind of freeing up portion of, you know, simpler suitability regime. So where you're not getting your kind of holistic, you know, financial advice, financial plan, you can give bits of advice with kind of clearer suitability stuff where people need a bit more help to get them over the line. And, and basically you want those two models to kind of be in slight tension with each other so that there's no kind of clear arbitrage opportunity so that what you actually get in terms of kind of market outcomes is firms, you know, identifying their kind of target market, 
you know, coming up with the right solution, no matter what it is, whether it's guidance, it's kind of whatever we call it, simplified suitability or under the kind of existing suitability and they make the right choice for them. And there's no clear kind of arbitrage versus the regime next door, which is going to be quite tricky to do. And then the other thing I'd say is people can currently give forms of personalised help which aren't personalised guidance. So you want to make sure that you don't stop any firm to, uh, you know, being helpful at the moment, suddenly being less helpful than they might otherwise have been, which is difficult because, as Nathan says, and I completely agree, you've got the duty really putting firms on notice at the moment that, you know, they need to spot foreseeable harm. You need to help people make good investment decisions. You need to design your products and services in a way that's kind of consistent with good outcomes. And I think that's probably raised the bar around the kind of non-advised services big generalisation, but from working in the space quite a bit was at the FCA. I think there was a bit of a view previously that if you gave advice, then obviously, yes, you've got suitability. But if you weren't, there's a big cliff edge in terms of your responsibilities. And I think the, the reality probably was, although I don't think the FCA always supervised against it that proactively, that no, even for guidance models, you still need to think about your product range, your supportive information, how you equip people to make a good decision. But that's definitely been crystallised now under the duty. So what you're saying is this is one more reason for firms to love the consumer duty, is that it's created the foundations that allow a more comprehensive solution to the advice guidance problem. Yeah, I mean, it probably is pushing the regulator to realise that what it expects firms to do in the non-advised space, they don't often feel they can do because as Nathan said, once you start using the information you have, tailoring some of the you know, underlying support you want to give to a customer, you're getting close to pointing them at a product, which then would be a personal recommendation. So I think it's really brought some of those issues into the, the front right and centre, hence the kind of focus on, on trying to sort that through the, uh, through the guidance review. So uh, Nathan, you talked about uh, personalised guidance. And I mean, as you were talking about it, it sounded to me like something that would work for the big firms, take Highbridge Lansdowne, for example. Is, is that workable right across the marketplace? Or is that something effectively you just put up quite a high barrier to entry in there? It's easy to kind of look at it that way, I guess. But we are also dealing with how firms that are helping people with their money, the regulatory kind of barriers on banks are incredibly high. And we don't really have any kind of concerns around that because we want the institutions that we bank with to be incredibly secure, well-regulated, etc., etc. And I think that's just an extension here. Increasingly, these firms that we're talking about, the big insurers, platforms, they are going to be holding people's wealth, their savings for retirement. It's really important that they're very, very well-regulated. And so that's kind of why we think that's important. But also, just because there's an additional authorization, it doesn't stop small firms from being able to apply. And it also doesn't stop, it just means that there's a certain level of due diligence, expectation around governance and data sharing. In many ways, smaller firms might have the ability to share data more easily if they're sort of working with newer platforms. And I guess probably the question mark there is around the levels of governance, and maybe that's where you can sort of use sort of third parties to help you do that. But I think it's not unreasonable for a consumer to expect that their provider that's trying to personalise information to help them has got the right controls in place to recognise that that is actually the right thing for them to be sort of steered towards. Okay, so there's a certain enthusiasm for defaults and for, I mean, 
we've had kite mark products in the past. We've had standardized products, you know, stakeholder products in the past. And it feels like the pendulum's swinging back towards that mindset a little bit with the adoption, first of all, of auto-enrollment, but now the FCA looking to introduce defaults for non-workplace pensions. And you know, there's a sense that this works. So I'd be interested in your thoughts from either of you on, on whether as part of this review, we might see the re-emergence of more of the kind of kite marking type standardized product solution to this conundrum of how we get help to customers. There's, there's some really interesting points around that, though, because my reflections of the non-workplace default solutions that are coming in is that the FCA has learned very quickly from the work that they did within Pathways and the retirement Pathways mm-hmm. work, realised where that caused problems in implementation, not least because consumers didn't already always understand how those were being displayed. And actually, they've made the non-workplace default not actually a default. It's just a solution that needs to be presented at the point of application. And it's been far more flexible around how firms can can implement that. And I think that's really positive because one of our kind of overriding principles when we're sort of speaking to the regulator is to to make sure that they allow firms the opportunity to innovate. Because if you're too prescriptive around what you want to deliver, you're essentially setting the choice architecture. You don't allow anyone to innovate around how you can innovate, provide information to clients. And I think that example in quite a short space of time on two very similar policy areas shows the FCA's approach to a more kind of principles-based way of thinking. One of the things that I think is quite interesting as part of this advice guidance review is, Michael flagged this earlier, to what extent can firms under a guided journey point to a solution? And I think there is an important discussion to be had around whether there are certain funds that are okay to point to as a single solution on the guidance side and certain funds that aren't. And I think there's an interesting point there around, we would sort of categorize this as a sort of core fund versus constituent fund. So if a fund is designed to be a portfolio in its own right, so a you know a well-diversified multi-asset fund, you could buy that off the peg. And to be honest, it would serve you quite well. As a general rule, we as a financial services industry wouldn't be too worried if anyone ended up in a solution like that solely. That's the kind of use the term kite marking, Tom, but that's the kind of thing where you probably feel rather comfortable. Whereas constituent funds, where you've kind of got, for example, a single jurisdiction or a particular thematic fund, you'd expect those not to be a portfolio in their own right. And so maybe you couldn't be quite as suggestive in terms of the communication that goes around those kind of funds. So I think there's something in what you're suggesting but I think it's quite a, again, like a lot of this whole issue is quite complicated and it needs a lot of thinking through of the, the pros and cons. I might jump in there because um, I think there's a number of kind of moving parts in this uh, space and they're not all mutually exclusive. So let me try and deal with them on a kind of part by part basis. So the first bit is products. So if we think that a lot of the kind of conduct requirements, whether it's suitability or whatnot, are predicated on you're going to sell something, but what you might sell or advise is it's going to be quite broad. Therefore, those suitability requirements need to work quite hard to make sure that when you're choosing from the range of, you know, absolutely everything out there, you're getting the right thing. And obviously certain products have, you know, enhanced requirements. I think if you had a group of narrower 
simpler products, whether it has a kite mark or not, it would give you the ability then to maybe relax, simplify, reduce some of the conduct requirements because you know that the things that you're selling don't have, you know, nasty feature X or Y or extra charge A and B. And so you can legitimately say, actually, for this kind of thing, you know, the suitability requirements or the guidance requirements, I don't want to, you know, suggest that I think everything is prized, it doesn't. They have to do less work and so you can make them simpler. But I don't get the sense that the FCA is is maybe looking in that direction, not least because I'm sure they mentioned this in the asset management discussion paper that was talk of a, a group of funds within USITs, like retail funds. And I don't think from what I read about the chairman's speech and then the update on the webpage, that that's one of the things that they're taking forward as part of that work. You know, it's in other areas, probably more pertinent to kind of the UK GDP and competitiveness and whatnot. So I, I don't think product currently at the top of their thoughts. I think pathways are slightly different. I mean, they're linked to product, but the idea is that you fall into a solution. And like Nathan said, the firm itself determines what that default should be obviously investment pathways are the example you could imagine a similar kind of pathway like you know new approach for other products or other needs sorry whether it's you know investing into an ISO or or whatever else it is and then you've got the issue of well separate to that then what you do with the conduct requirements whether it's advice or guidance so I think there's different moving parts I'll be interested to see where the kind of industry feedback comes after the FCA publishes and how much it suggests leading with some of these things. Yeah and alongside that you've also got and I know it's a different regulatory framework but the dwp through the pensions regulator who now work in lockstep with the, with the fca as we know looking at decumulation and there you really are into the realms of thinking about how they can funnel customers down towards specific solutions so that very much feels like pathways at the end of which are products and i think you know there's there's an interesting challenge there for the various regulatory bodies to try and make sure that everything synchronizes effectively across occupational pensions and contract-based pensions and the different regulatory houses. It's a really interesting observation because the the best pathway that they could introduce on any kind of accumulation pension when you've left and you're thinking about retirement is not an investment pathway, it's actually a consolidation pathway. How do I go about consolidating this with my other plans? If that was the pathway that everyone focused on, you'd get significantly improved retirement decision-making from the population as a whole, I'm sure. But I think that's the point why, you know, you're going to need to have a kind of multiplicity of solutions that can exist no matter where we get to on the kind of fundamentals, because you're right, I mean, that, that, that would be sensible. And yet, if that pathway doesn't exist, then that's where, I suppose, a guided journey could help, but certainly where some kind of, you know, suitability journey might be the right thing for, for some people. The other point is, it's, it's easy to think of this within the context of like new money or, you know, whether that's going to an ISA or a pension. But of course, the big issue for many people is that what they've already got isn't probably 
right for them or at least it's suboptimal and so you know whenever i think about this whilst yes yeah you know people you know investing into an isa or making a good choice with their kind of accumulation pension decision is obviously key we shouldn't forget that you know most of the wealth in this country is already invested a number of those consumers might not be getting the best deal and so any solution needs to also look at how firms interact with those customers and either guide or advise them to something that's more appropriate going to produce a better outcome you know in a proportionate way and and that's a, a, another significant challenge and that takes us back to Nathan's personalized guidance again the thing i'd add to that Every conversation I have ever had about personalised guidance is how can we improve the information, the help that we're providing for existing consumers? Because that's the people that, as Michael said, they're already investing and we can help them better, whether that be within a pension, whether that be within an ISA, whether that be talking about the amount they withdraw from their pension, for example. There's loads of use cases for personalised guidance, but I think the big win really for the industry from a commercial perspective is for helping clients better manage their money. They have a better experience with financial services and as a result, more people see saving and investing as a good thing. I don't think this from a commercial perspective is a quick win for selling products. I don't think that's the case at all. I think this is about improving the standard of financial services so that in saving and investing for the future is a good thing. And by the way, firms can really help you on the way. I think that's genuinely, I think, the opportunity. Here. Yeah, and I'd just add to that, the post-retirement space. It's not just the decision-making at the point of retirement, but the hand-holding for the customers as they go on through their 60s and 70s and into their 80s and we're increasingly moving into a defined contribution world. For now, at least, predominantly not buying annuities. So I worry about the failure to provide help and support for customers in that space that's, that currently exists. And I'm, kinda, I'm hoping that one of the things that comes out of this review is a solution that makes it you know, that delivers better better support for customers in that space. I think the other thing on this, Tom, is definitely we see the, the big win that's delivering more personalised guidance, that help to that group who aren't at that point in time prepared to or able to take advice. But we have to recognise that in the fullness of time, more and more people will take advice. And because you're going to get more digitalization of solutions the the cost of advice will come down as it becomes more efficient to deliver if you have the development of open banking open finance all of a sudden that fact find process is not only far easier but far more accurate so there's lots of wins that can come and actually one of the things that we've been trialing at Hargreaves Lansdowne recently is behaviorally framing advice and guidance as services next to one another and talking within that about the responsibility for the client and the responsibility for Hargreaves Lansdowne in both of those two services. And what's really interesting is when you frame them side by side and frame the responsibility, you increase the number of people who want to take advice. So I think there's wins for driving more people to advice anyway. I think that's possible both by reducing costs and and better articulation of the services. And I think it's really important as well. It's very, very important if you go into a more personalised guidance space 
that the difference between the two services is absolutely understood by the client because you do not want to have any misunderstanding there. No, absolutely agree with that. I'm, I'm conscious we've been talking for, for nearly three quarters of an hour about regulated advice, which is probably as much as most people can cope with in one sitting. So we should probably wrap up soon. I did want to ask you guys about FOS and whether we should worry about the Ombudsman service and alignment with the regulator. Do, do uh, either of you want to pick up on that? Yeah, I mean, this comes up as a key reason why firms often don't do more, whether that's be more helpful with regards to guidance or whether it's developed more innovative, streamlined advisory solutions. The concern being that they will stray over the line or not meet suitability. And when I was working on the financial advice market review, you know, this came up. The reason we, we're, you know, I'm parroting a firm here. The reason, the reason we don't do this thing that you're suggesting we should do is because we're really concerned about the kind of ombudsman and the kind of errant decisions it often makes. And so both then, I, I think, and more recently as part of that ties of work, there has been a call for, for firms to bring out kind of cases whereby there have been these kind of significant misjudgments by the ombudsman. And, and yeah, across all of that time, the evidence perhaps isn't quite there. Now, that's not to say that the ombudsman is perfect, but what I think it suggests is that the perception of it might be more kind of powerful in informing how people act than the kind of reality. So what it does suggest to me that it's really important going forward that the FCA and the ombudsman are in kind of, you know, really close alignment on this and that, you know, there's some compelling, you know, whether it's in the quality of the guidance and requirements, because ultimately that's what the ombudsman follows when it seeks to reach its kind of uh, decisions, that there's enough there to give firms the kind of confidence that they can take those steps in the areas that they want to play and, and perhaps stop short of where they don't and for the, the consequences of that to be kind of predictable. I do think that there's a bigger fear than the actual reality, but we have to come back to the rules. It's not the rules themselves. It's the behavioural impact that they have on firms and that fear of the unknown because it's not completely aligned with the FCA and we know that does change the behaviour within compliance departments within firms. And ultimately, whether we like that or not, that's what we have to solve for in however these these rules are redesigned. And actually, that's one of the reasons why Hargreaves Lansdowne has been testing this framing of the two services side by side, because actually, you kind of get to a solution where if the FOS were to say, look, if you framed it in this way, there's no excuse for the client not knowing the service that they got to. So there's no ambiguity around that. And you see evidence already of the FCA starting to use their behavioural testing in some of their policy, particularly around high-risk investments. And I wonder if there's an opportunity for really clear behavioural signposting of services to maybe be something that's that's kind of prescribed at a high level on industry to take away some of that FOS risk. But again, you know, that's this is all the stuff that's hopefully will come out of the review. And for me, just pick up on what you said there, I think it's not just understanding what the service is, whether it's advice, whether it's guidance. It's also kind of being clear on what the scope of that is, because I think there's a real risk of letting kind of perfect be the enemy of the good here. So this will be, you know, in the advice space, you know, where people think that, you know, all advice needs to have, you know, 
a comprehensive fat fine that goes into labyrinthine detail about the client, even when the scope of that advice is quite narrow. And also going back to what you've been mentioning, Nathan, you know, if you are going to use the data that you have on the client to help them make a good decision, I mean, ultimately, the limitations of that are going to be that you know the data that you know, you don't have the full picture. So, you know, at Hargreaves, you won't necessarily know the client's assets elsewhere. And I suppose if you're saying to them, dear client, you know, here's a service, we're going to use what we have to try and you know point you to a, a better decision help you make a, a more informed decision but it's based on what we have on you and if you want that uh, decision to take care of all the other things you have elsewhere then perhaps another service is right for you and I think for me that kind of pragmatism needs to kind of inform the kind of advice guidance boundary outcomes because if the FCA is only happy to get like perfect outcomes. It will squash down on lots of alternative services that give a pretty good outcome for the client with their need, but might not be the perfect solution, which to be honest, the client might not be willing to pay for and the firm's willing to give. So it's it's a careful balancing act to, to kind of uh, come up with the outputs there, I think. I completely agree. If we can get clients to better, it doesn't have to be best. If we can improve the position from where they start, that has to be an overall good outcome. That sounds like a good place to leave it for today. Guys, thank you very much for your thoughts on all that. It's been super interesting. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Pleasure. We're expecting a policy statement from the FCA. They said in the autumn, which is fast running out, so probably quite soon. And once we've had a look at that, maybe we'll do another podcast to analyse what they've said and what we think about it. As ever, thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Like, subscribe, tell your friends. Editor, as always, was Ross Burns. 